Hello, hello, Bridge Youth. I hope you guys are all having a wonderful, wonderful evening. Hi, you guys. So my name is Kenneth McCow. I'm super, super blessed to be able to serve here at Bridge Youth alongside a bunch of other really great, really fantastic leaders, and also alongside our fantastic generational pastors, Corey and Amber White. And I consider it such a blessing to be able to serve the amazing kids of the Valley here at Bridge Youth. I absolutely love getting to do what I do here. I don't really know entirely what my title is. Um, every time that like, I ask Corey what it is, he like, gives me like, a different answer. I basically just get to like, do a bunch of stuff here at church in like, our kids' ministry and our youth ministry. And I couldn't ask God for a better job because I just absolutely love it so, so much. And today I'm going to be continuing our Who is God series covering a topic of judgment. So it is going to be, I'm, I'm just going to be completely, like, honest here at, like, the beginning of the message. It's going to be a really, really, like, heavy topic. It's going to cover some, like, really complicated and uncomfortable things. But I just want to encourage us to kind of take on the mantra that this whole series has had with us just being able to entertain the idea that we're not going to decide who God is. We're just going to open up the word of God and discover who God is. And instead of trying to just write out, like, what God's nature is for ourselves. We're just going to detach ourselves from what it is that we might think we know about God and just simply open up the word and see what it has to teach us. There's this uh, verse in Romans 3, 4, which says, let the word of God be true and let all men be liars. And so we're going to just try to simply open up the word of God and see what God would like to teach us regarding his perfect judgment. Amen. All right, so without further ado, let's quickly stand in the honor of the reading of God's word, and we'll get into the verse for today, which is James 2.13, James 2.13, onto the screen. It says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anybody who has not been merciful, and mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, everybody can bow their heads real quick, close their eyes, and we'll pray. Uh, dear God, I just pray that you uh, keep us humble. Uh, we pray that through this message you could possibly remind us of who you are, God, and who we aren't. And just give us this deep humility and recognition of our spiritual bankruptcy apart from you. And Father God, I want to thank you that you're just going to have your way and do what only you can do in our lives. And that your work can possibly just pierce our hearts and change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody can go ahead and grab a seat. On your way to a seat, really quick with a show of hands, how many of you have ever gone cliff jumping or bridge jumping before? You brave few. You brave few. I've, I've cliff jumped, but it's kind of misleading to say that. It was literally like the height from like this stage like, to like the water is like right there at the carpet. Marco, Mar Marco, Marco knows that I'm pretty much lying if I say that I've bridged. Actually, there's like a story from, so my, my closest friends in this world, my best friends, the people that I know the best and know me the best, are people who I met in this youth ministry in like, Years and years and years and years and years ago, right? People like, some people you guys see on the stage, like Noah, Marco, Eli, Isaiah. Um, and then some of us, like maybe like the other half of our group, they're like off doing college and like different places and stuff like that. But we grew up here in Bridge Youth. And um, we pretty much like clung to each other like when we found each other because we just loved God passionately. And we loved just finding people who were also excited about God and also just, I don't know. Cool, we enjoyed each other's company and stuff like that. And so uh, in 2014, we did a quick trip to Oceanside. And while we were just wandering around, we stumbled across like a bridge with a small like stream of water underneath it that came out from the ocean. And I remember some people were like standing on the side, I was standing on the side, and some people were on the bridge and we were arguing like who's gonna jump first because we were scared that it wasn't deep enough to, you know, like stop the fall or whatever. And I can't remember who it was, but in like the middle of arguing, somebody just jumped off and they ended up like surviving. And so after we saw that they were okay, everybody just started jumping off and uh, just doing a bunch of bridge jumps. David's doing gainers and stuff like that. It was real cool. Uh, I'm, like, on the side. I have, like, the camera. This is, like, 2014, like, so I think people were just realizing that people can get famous and paid off of YouTube. So we were vlogging everything we were doing at that time, and I'm just, like, taking videos and trying to, you know, go unnoticed a little bit. And at, like, the end of, like, a half hour of just being there, people start, like, skating back to where we were. And... I think it was Marco, he was like, Kenneth, Andrew, y'all didn't jump yet. And we're like, oh, no, we're about to, we're about to. And like, all right, we're going we're gonna to go now. So they leave, and it's just me and Andrew there. Andrew is a friend of ours who lives in Arizona right now. He's actually going to be here, I think, next week. 
And Andrew and I don't have like the ability to confide in each other and tell each other that we're actually very afraid of heights. And so what we proceed to start doing is just like try to encourage each other to jump off this bridge, even though neither one of us knows that the, either one is definitely not doing it. It got so extra to the point where I was at one point just like hanging, literally like hanging off the bridge. And then at that point, I had a small panic attack and like asked Andrew to please like, like bring me back up to the top. And we like looked at each other and we're like, dude, there's absolutely no way I'm dropping off this bridge. Like I have a pretty healthy fear of heights. And so we went back and we lied. And we told everybody that we had jumped off the bridge even though we hadn't. And they're like, why are you guys dry still? I'm like, bro, like we were skating pretty fast, dude. There's a little hill and all this different stuff. But all that's to say, like, um, as it, like, pertains to the message, like, so imagine that someone's, like, walking towards a cliff, and there's no water at the bottom, and it's, like, 100 feet, you know, like, 10 stories. Um, if somebody is walking towards a cliff, it's always loving to tell them about that cliff, even if, for some reason, telling them about the cliff would hurt their feelings or offend them in some way, no matter what, it's always loving to tell them if they're walking towards a cliff. And so this message is going to unpack an aspect of God's nature that might be uncomfortable to hear and learn about. And it might be a little bit offensive even to some of us. But the fact of the matter is that it's true. And as we unpack the word of God, let the word of God be true and let all men be liars. And even if it's a little bit painful or uncomfortable to hear about, it's always loving to tell people about the cliff that their sins are taking them to. Amen? And so with that said, we're going to open up one of the most intimidating books in the Bible, the book of Job. It is spelt J- it is, it is spelled J-O-B, so I'm pretty sure Kanye has a line about it in Jesus is King, where he said that I thought it was like a book of Job or something like that. I don't know. I got I to gotta revisit that album. But uh, we're going to open up the book of Job. And Job is actually the first book of the Bible ever written as far as, like, the date it was written. It's the oldest book of the Bible. And it's a, it's a book about a man named Job. And it's basically just a book that follows his life. And it tries to answer the question that we're going to be trying to answer tonight. If we can put up the first point, is God just? And the book is simply just trying to answer that question. Is God just? And is God fair? And in the beginning of the book, Job is described as this dude who's like the Elon Musk or like Bill Gates of his time. Like he's like super, super wealthy, super prosperous, and he has all these material things. And he has land and houses and animals and farm animals and all the things that, you know, like are like the Bentleys and the Rolls Royces of like his time. And even beyond like his material wealth, he has like servants and like a huge family. And then after describing how wealthy and prosperous Job is, the book goes on to describe how much Job loves God. And it describes him as like this dude who's like righteous and blameless. And he sacrifices his animals to God. And even if it's like his kids might like be sinning and he's not sure, he like sacrifices animals for them. And Job is described as like this righteous and good and like near perfect person. So good to the point where God is even like bragging about him. He's like, look at Job. Like Job is like so good. And he's like, he loves me and all this different stuff. And what happens next is Satan comes to the throne room of God, and he basically says to God, Job does not really love you. The only reason that Job loves you is because you give him all this stuff, and you bless the work of his hands, and you make him prosper. And so what Satan tells God is that if you allowed me to take all that stuff away from him, I promise you that Job will curse your name and turn away from you. And what happens next is God agrees to this, like, test almost that Satan proposes. And God allows Satan to strike Job. And over the next couple of verses, Job undergoes the most, like, horrific, like, turn of events in his life. And basically in, like, this, like, swift move, he loses everything. Not just his, like, wealth and his prosperity and all of his animal and land and houses, but he also loses his family and his children and his servants, but it doesn't stop there. In Job chapter 2, Satan strikes Job again, and he's afflicted with all these different diseases and sicknesses, and the Bible actually says that Job was covered with boils from the crown of his head to the bottom of his feet, 
And what happens next is Job is sitting in basically the ash heap of what was like previously all the stuff that he owned and was so prosperous with, worshiping God. And his wife comes up to him and she says, Job, how could you be so foolish? Why are you maintaining your integrity to God still? You need to curse God and then die. And what Job says to her is, how can you be so foolish? Shall I accept only good things from God and not trouble also? The next thing that Job does is he takes a pot from his old house, breaks it against the ground, and uses shards from the pot to scrape the boils off of his body. And then he continues to worship God. That is the first two chapters of the book of Job. And so what happens next is he starts to like weep and mourn about like all the things that he lost. In fact, the Bible says that he spent seven days doing that. And three of his friends come to comfort him. Three guys with really, really complicated names that I'm not going to try to read to you guys. But if you guys want to go and read Job chapter 3, they, they seem like pretty all right guys. But they come and try to comfort Job. And what happens next is Job and his three friends start to have a conversation. And they start to have a conversation about the questions that we're going to be asking ourselves today. Is God just? If God is just, then why do bad things happen to good people? And why do people seemingly undeserving of suffer, suffering suffer so much sometimes in life? Why are some people born with infirmities and are never given a chance to succeed in life? And these are the questions that they start to ask themselves as they wrestle with each other and try to deconstruct the character of God. And over the, that was just the first two chapters where Job is kind of afflicted in the way that we just came to understand. And over the next 35 chapters... Job has a conversation with these three friends of his, trying to just understand and rationalize the decision-making of a God who claims to be just. And so Job's friends are like, we know God is good, and God is perfect, and so there must be a reason for why you're suffering. And Job, the entire book, tries to like maintain his innocence and say, like, I'm suffering, suffering undeservingly, and if God is just... I demand that he come and explain why I'm experiencing the things that I'm experiencing in life. And Job's faithfulness to God slowly begins to waver. And their conversation turns into a debate. And then it turns into an argument. And Job slowly and surely like starts to like lose faith in this God as he's trying to understand or like come to terms with the awful things that he just experienced in life. And he even accuses God of being reckless and tyrannical and corrupt and unfair. And so towards the end of the book of Job, in Job chapter 37, he says that I demand that God come down from heaven and explain to me why I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing. He says, I demand that God come and put his indictment on me. And so for the past 35 chapters, they themselves have been basically trying to say who God is. And so what happens next is God answers Job. And he comes down from heaven, and instead of letting other people explain who he is, he comes down and explains himself. And in Job 38, God comes down to answer Job's question. And in the beginning of Job 38, it says that God comes down in a storm cloud. And in Job 38, verse 1, God tells Job, Who is it that is obscuring my plans without lacking in knowledge? And then he tells Job, Brace yourself like a man, because I'm about to question you. And then he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And instead of answering Job's question, he kind of takes Job on this grand tour of the universe. And he asks Job, who is it that makes cells replicate and makes planets orbit suns? And he kind of asks Job, is it your wisdom that can possibly govern this universe and constantly execute mercy and judgment perfectly and sovereignly? He asked Job, who is it that makes birds migrate south for the winter? And he kind of gets Job to understand that his experiences on earth are nuanced and complex as God bobs and weaves around like the decisions that we make with the free will that we have. And he kind of gets Job to understand that it's God's universe that governs, or it's God's wisdom that governs the universe justly and not ours. And he tries to get Job to just see that it's his wisdom and his, like, constant, meticulous exertion that allows every atom in our universe to just be upheld. And it's only by, like, his constant attention that, like, we're even, like, held together. 
And basically, after saying that for two chapters and taking Job on like this tour of the universe, Job tries to apologize. And in Job chapter 40, he says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I spoke once, but I have no answer, and twice, but I'll say no more. And then God stops Job one more time, and he says, brace yourself like a man, and he goes into explaining two more things. And what God does is he describes two beasts on the earth, and he basically says that these two beasts could squash Job without even thinking about it. And he asks Job, like, how could you possibly even tame these, like, two creatures on earth? And then after two more chapters of describing those two creatures on earth, God exits. And that's the explanation that Job gets in regards to God's justice. And what Job says in chapter 42 is, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can ever be thwarted. You asked, who is it that is obscuring your plans while lacking in knowledge? Surely, God, I spoke of things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to even know. You said, listen now, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Then Job said, my ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. And therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And so, is God just? That is the answer that Job gets in Job chapters 1 through 42. Is The answer is basically yes, more just than we could ever even realistically imagine. And so... That's point one of the message for today, and we can move on to point two, which kind of ties into the end of the book, which is that Job realizes that asking God to explain or rationalize his decision-making to us is a little bit absurd, given an understanding of how big and how holy and how sovereign this God is. And so point two that we're going to be going over is we are unfit judges, and so just to start off this point, one time I was driving home from Riverside um, after hanging out with my brother who lives there. Whew, it's warm. <laughs> yes, yes, I look like a UPS driver is what I've been hearing all day. <laughs> Amen. Well, well, I'll just leave it there. And so, <laughs> and so I'm driving home from Riverside after hanging out with my brother and a pastor friend of ours, a friend, like Corey's like, closest friend, his name is Solomon. And after hanging out with Kevin and Solomon, I'm driving home. And the drive home from Riverside to Temecula is about 45 minutes. But, and this is stupid. I don't endorse this at all. Please drive safe. Protect yourself and others on the road. But I was on pace to make that 45-minute drive in about 20, 25 minutes. So if you do the math, instead of 60, 65 miles per hour, I was driving about 120 miles per hour, which is the top speed of my Volkswagen Passat, and um, I'm, like two, I'm like two exits away from uh, my house, and in the rearview mirror, I see red and blue, but not just one cop car, four cop cars, and they're like giving me very specific instructions over the intercom while I like start to slow down my car, and what's it called? What happened next? They're like exit and pull into this alley, and one parks in front of me, one parks behind me. You know those fog lights on top of them? They turn those on. It's, it's like 3.34 a.m. It's instantly daytime in my car. It's bright as heck. They can see the whole inside of my car. And um, I, like, uh, like, take the keys out of my car, put my hands on the steering wheel. And then it was probably the stupidest thing I could have asked. But when, he, when the police officer came to the window, I was like, what seems to be the problem, officer? As if, as if, like, as if like, I wasn't doing anything wrong. And then I can't, remember what he, I can't remember what he said next. Probably like, son, do you know how fast you're driving? Or something along those lines. And I'm like talking to him for like a few minutes. And he's like, where are you coming from? And I was like, oh, I was uh, watching Avengers Infinity War. The minute from, That's true, by the way. I was in Riverside watching Avengers Infinity War with my, yes, it was the premiere. This was like 2018. And uh, I was like, yeah, I was watching Avengers Infinity War um, with my brother and my friend. And he's like, oh, Avengers Infinity War. Oh, my son was... Uh, uh, trying to watch that movie, but he's 12, it's PG-13. I was like, sir, it's Marvel. It's not really that bad. And so we proceed to have, like, this uh, conversation about, like, just, like, his son and Marvel movies and stuff like that. And we kind of, like, hit it off. And I'm starting to, like, charm this dude. And um, we're, we're talking for, over the whole time, at least a half hour. 
but it was probably closer to like an hour long. And uh, yeah, I'm t- like I, the the other cop cars like are leaving after like ten minutes, and we're like talking. He's going back to his car and to me a couple times. I'm like sitting there. And I'm like, bro, like what's gonna happen next? And he's like, he's like, son, I'm probably gonna have to like take you in. Like you know how fast you're going, 120. I was like. Yeah, but Marvel. And then, like, I, can, I, I tried to, like, change the subject without him noticing, and I did that a couple times, to be honest with you. And uh, at the end of the night, he's like, yeah, like, your ticket should be, like, this amount, and you're going to get your license revoked. And I'm like, this, I was, I was, um, I'm like, I was like, I'm a leader. I, talk, I started talking to him about, like, the British Church. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a volunteer leader. At the, no, 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 he was chill. He was cool. He was cool. He was cool. He was, he was very, he was very, very nice. And so I, so I started telling him, like, but, like, I volunteer with, like, students at the bridge. Like, I drive students, this and that. I, 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 now I realize I probably shouldn't have said that, but I did. And I was, like, a, um, I talked to him. At that time, I worked at Big Bear. I was, like, bro, come into Big Bear tomorrow. I'll give you, like, a free, like, um, like ice cream sandwich. And basically, at the end of, like, a half hour talking to this guy, I didn't end up getting a ticket. And so I should have... My ticket should have been like 2K. My ticket should have been like 2K. I should have been put in like the cop car that night. What's it called? I should have gotten strikes on my insurance. I should have gotten um, my license revoked and like a bunch of other stuff. But I was able to just charm this guy and like get out of like the ticket that I deserved. And so that kind of brings us on to point two. We are unfit judges. The point is that our justice, like if justice was served, I don't know where I would have been that night. I don't know. Like, or at least for like the next six months, I wouldn't have had a license. Any students of mine, I wouldn't have been able to drive you around legally and all that different stuff. Um, but I was able to, to charm myself or charm this dude out of like giving me a ticket. And the reason is because our justice is very imperfect. Our justice contains like bias and vanity and selfish ambition sometimes and... Um, I was talking to, I was at Linfield this Friday, and I was talking to a student, like, during lunches, he was in my class, and I was talking to him about this message, and he's like, yeah, that actually, like, makes sense, like, our, ju- like, our justice and our judgment is imperfect, and I was like, yeah, dude, and he's like, have you ever tried to invent a game, like, with your friends when you were little, and I was like, yeah, and he was like, you know how, in the, as you guys are continuing to build the rules of the game while you play, you, like, make the rules work in your favor so that you can win? And I was like, yes, I have, Grayson. I definitely have. And also, like, all my friends when we were little used to do that. Shaheen used to annoy me so much when he would do that when we were little. And the fact of the matter is, it's not that different when we're adults. We constantly redefine good and evil in ways that, like, accommodate the way that we feel. And 200 years ago, there were aspects of, like, or things that people thought were good and bad that aren't necessarily true today. And in 200 years in the future, things will probably change in like some subtle and small ways. And we constantly redefine good and evil in ways that pleases ourselves. While God's law and God's judgment and justice is eternal and perfect. And the silly thing is, even as we change our ideas of what is good and what is evil constantly, we can't even maintain the law that we keep for ourselves, let alone God's law. I know for a fact... Everybody in this room has jaywalked at least one time. Or everybody in this room has, like, gotten, like, a water cup from, like, a restaurant and gotten, like, soda. I did that Sunday, actually. I wings and things, now that I think about it. And um, the silly thing is, if somebody transgresses or breaks our laws, we expect judgment or justice to be, like, carried out on that person if they're guilty. Um, But even our carrying out of justice does not imitate the justice that God carries out. If we can put up James 1.20 up on the screen, which says human anger or other versions say human wrath does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Our punishment of evil and wrongdoing does not imitate what it is that God's judgment does. And the sad thing is that sometimes our carrying out of justice for wrongdoing is uncalculated and it can't possibly imitate the wrath that God tries to use when he carries out judgment for sin. Um, There's one more set of scriptures that I want to bring up on this topic as we try to reflect on how if somebody has wronged us in some way, carrying out justice on that person, if somebody has like 
hurt you in some way or something like that, does not have to be of any concern of yours. If you guys want to turn to Romans 12, 17 through 21, it says, Do not repay anyone's evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The good thing about our justice being as imperfect uh, as it is, is we don't have to rely and lean on our justice when it comes to eternity. But we can lean on the justice of a God who promises to make every crooked path straight and to vindicate every single wrongdoing and to correct every single injustice that we experience. Um, It's comforting to know that revenge uh, isn't ours to worry about. And so when somebody wrongs us in any way, it's not for us to be over-concerned about how justice can be carried on on that person. All that we are left to do is just love that person. And it's God's wrath and God's judgment that's going to be more perfect than anything that we could ever try to do for ourselves. And the sad thing is that there are some Christians that have a difficult time remembering or realizing this. And that results in Christians who can sometimes be a little bit judgmental. Christians who forget that every second of every day, they are met with so much grace and patience and mercy and forgiveness that they don't even deserve. And the judgment that their actions deserve, God is not even giving them. And yet, for some reason, sometimes some Christians love to be judgmental about other people's walks of faith and where they are in the relationship with Christ. And so you might be, and be honest with yourself, you might be a judgmental Christian if you always talk about other people's mistakes or if you don't like to hear that you are wrong about anything or if you have a hard time admitting that you've ever done wrong. It's so difficult for us to always remember, I understand the grace that we are given, but that grace should be transformative and recognition of it should help us realize that God, rather than judging us according to what our actions deserve, He's given us a tremendous amount of grace and patience and mercy. And that's the whole idea of this gospel, that our sins make us deserving of judgment. But instead of giving us over to what our actions deserve, God has been so tremendously patient with us and loving towards us, so loving that he even went to the cross to absorb the punishment that your sins deserve. And so as we navigate our lives, we should always remember that when we see somebody in a different place in their walk of faith, to just give them the grace that we're receiving the second that we're even thinking the thoughts about judging them. Or when it comes to like carrying out revenge because somebody has wronged you or been unjust to you in some way, that all that you have to do is not worry about overcoming evil with evil, but to offer them good and to offer them love, grace, mercy, and patience. The same patience that you are a recipient of right now as a Christian. And hopefully the justice that God carries out on them could still be transformative enough to turn their hearts to him. Transformative in a way that it gives them reverence and awe uh, in recognition of the God who is not giving them over to what their sins deserve. And so that brings us to our last point, point number three, which is that mercy triumphs um, over judgment. Uh, At the beginning of the message, we read a verse from James 2.13, which at the end of it said that mercy triumphs over judgment. When I was a kid, there was a song from Bethel called Mercy, which said that God delights in showing mercy and mercy triumphs over judgment. I always thought it was so beautiful, but I never really realized that it was quoting a Bible verse. And the crazy thing that, like, if perfect, like, God doesn't govern his relationship with us based on justice exclusively. God's justice is a uncomfortable and like scary but beautiful aspect of his nature. But the fact of the matter is that he doesn't govern his relationship with us based exclusively on justice. For example, if that cop, when he pulled me over, if the way he navigated his uh, like dealing of me was based only on justice, I would have been put in cuffs right away, put in the back of that cop car and taken to wherever they were going to like, uh, I, like 
take me to like court or whatever. I can't remember what everything he said that I had to go through. But it's like the same thing with God. If justice was exclusively the aspect of God's heart that drove his decision making, then the breath that we're breathing right now would be our last. Because God would address our sin based on perfect justice. And the destructive hellfire that we unleash on God's good world would justly become our God-appointed eternity. But luckily, justice is not the exclusive trait of God's nature that he governs his relationship with us with. Um, The beautiful thing is that mercy triumphs over judgment. And every second of every day, God is not giving us over to what our actions deserve, but instead he's giving us a tremendous amount of patience and grace and love and mercy. There's, uh, I guess, like a popular saying that sometimes people like to say, which is, only God can judge me. But the fact of the matter is, like, whenever, like, somebody, like, says that, or, like, I read it in, like, an Instagram bio, I'm like, is that really, like, what you want to happen? Like, if God was to, like, govern his relationship with you based on justice exclusively and not on love and patience and grace... Like, is that, like, honestly, like, what you would want for God to judge your sins and to judge them perfectly and uncompromisingly? The fact of the matter is that God never wanted to condemn us for our sins at all. At the very beginning of your Bible, if you own one, the story at the beginning is of, like, God, like, creating, like, our universe and creating us. And in the third chapter of the whole Bible, Satan tempts humanity into sin, and sin separates us from God. And the moment that we sin and separate ourselves from God, God doesn't want to condemn and judge our sins. Immediately, the moment that we sin and distance ourselves from God, what God does instead is he kickstarts a redemption plan. And he basically makes this promise that one day he's going to do something. And whatever he's going to do, not only is it going to give us forgiveness of our sins, but it's going to irreversibly seal the fate of the person who tempts us in the first place. And it's no different from how we go through our lives today. Every single day, Satan tempts us into sinning because he wants to drag us into the same fate that he's been awarded. And in moments of weakness, we sin and give into temptation. But God never wanted to condemn us or give us over to what our sins deserve. Instead, God did what he promised to do in Genesis 3. And he went to the cross to take upon himself the penalty that our sins deserve. There's this beautiful verse in 2 Peter 3, 9, which basically says that God wants every single person to come into saving knowledge of that sin on the cross. I don't know if I gave it to you guys, but... Oh, yeah, is it going up? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. That promise that that verse is referring to is his promise to essentially save us from our sins. Um, As some understand slowness, instead, he is patient with us not wanting anyone to perish, but for everybody to come to repentance. Um, there's a very, very beautiful verse in Romans 2.4, which says that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And believe me, there's a lot of really, like, they're kind of intimidating, but fun aspects about God to learn about and to come to an understanding of, like God's judgment and God's wrath. And last week, Corey talked about, like, God's holiness. They're all cool and all that, but the Bible says in Romans 2.4 that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Not an understanding of his judgment or his wrath or his holiness, but it's an understanding of the kindness of God expressed to us on the cross that leads us to repent. If I can invite the band up as we come to the conclusion of the message. And the interesting thing about coming to an understanding of this redemption plan that God was going to carry out to forgive us from our sins was that it had to satisfy every aspect of God's perfect nature, including his judgment. Meaning, whatever it was going to be, it had to not only satisfy God's love and mercy and patience and kindness, but Jesus dying on the cross also had to satisfy God's wrath and judgment. And so the way that God decided to save us is he decided to come down to earth himself. And the punishment that our sins deserve he decided to take upon himself on the cross. 
in my last message, I talked about this cup of wrath, which is the punishment that our sins deserve, and about how Jesus, when he went to the cross, drank that whole cup. And now there's no punishment for anybody who's been redeemed through Christ Jesus. And so the beautiful thing is, is that the whole gospel is focused on this, that our sins are deserving of judgment, but instead of giving us over to what our sins deserve, God went a very, very, very great length to be able to give us what our sins don't make us deserving of, which is a tremendous amount of grace and undeserved forgiveness. Forgiveness so potent that our understanding of it is transformative, and it causes us to repent and to turn away from the lives that we were once living and live completely new lives, renewed in the knowledge and the image of Christ Jesus. As far as verses that talk about how amazing the gospel is and what it does to the heart of somebody who understands and has revelation of it, one of my favorites is Colossians 3, which says that because of understanding what Christ did on the cross for us, we can take off the old self and put on the new self. And it says, which is renewed in the knowledge and the image of Christ Jesus. And so because of not only God's judgment, but because of his perfect nature and how great of a length he went to forgive us of our sins on the cross, our sins are not met by judgment, but for anybody who recognizes the son on the cross, met by patience and grace and transformative and undeserving forgiveness. So if everybody wants to bow their heads and close their eyes. As this uh, message draws to a close, uh, maybe you're in this room and this is kind of the first chance that you've had to hear about some of the aspects of God's nature that you've heard about tonight. And maybe you're coming to a new understanding of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be able to receive grace and forgiveness. Uh, Christians use the word like saved a lot, but maybe you're for the first time coming to an understanding of what you're saved from. And so if you would like to accept what Jesus did on the cross for you and uh, surrender your life to God in recognition of his completion of that redemption plan in Genesis 3. Um, when I get to the count of three, I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand. Uh, just as an outward um, just as an outward representation of what it is that God is doing in your heart right now. So if you'd like to give your heart to God for the first time, I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand. One, two, three. Awesome. All right, just everybody in the room, if you guys would like to repeat this prayer with me, and especially those who raise your hand for the first time, and beyond even that outward expression of raising your hand or uh, what it is that these words are saying, try to mean them with your heart. And even when you find yourself worshiping in the next song that we're about to do or praying by yourself alone later today or tomorrow, whatever it may be, try to pray for God, to God with sincerity. Uh, a sincere understanding of what he did on the cross and how amazed you are that he could even love you as much as he does in light of everything that maybe you've done in your life. So as a youth ministry, let's just pray this together. Dear God, I humbly repent of my sin and I ask that you become the Lord of my life. Thank you for the price that was paid for me and giving me an understanding of what it is that Jesus did on the cross. I ask that you come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, can we give a round of applause for everybody that raised their hand for the first time? We're going to get into one more worship song, so I'm going to invite everybody to stand up and head to the front if you'd like to worship with us. And uh, just one more thing before uh, we get into the song. So when I was really, really little, like elementary school age, me, my little brother Kevin, and our friend, we were playing uh, in his, like, driveway. And me and Kevin went to our house, which is just, like, two doors down. And at one point, so we were, like, outside with, like, his parents. And at one point, I remember, like, going outside. And, and I remember going outside, and my friend was... Um, sitting on the curb in front of his driveway crying 
And I, I, like the moment that I walked outside, I saw his like mom and dad like speeding down the street, like speeding like as fast as they could go. And I could like, even in like fourth grade, I could notice like panic in their driving. And I just like came up to like my friend who was like crying on like the curb. And I asked him what was wrong. And he said that his mom got stung by a bee on the neck and she was being like rushed to the hospital. And it wasn't that big of a deal, but he was like crying like really hard, like bawling his eyes out. And I was kind of scared too, because you know, we're little like, like second, third graders. And uh, what's it called? I remember like talking to him for like a little bit. And something that was very uncharacteristic of me, like even when I was getting to like older grades, was I tried to talk to him about Jesus and ask him if I can pray with him. And that was kind of like unusual for me because I was a little bit like scared of sharing my faith when I was like younger. And I just, I don't know, I did. And I got to like pray with him for like a little bit. And all that's to say like for you to be brave enough to like evangelize in your guys' campuses or like with like your unsafe family members, for you guys to be convicted to want to live lives that are set apart from the norm and more holy and pleasing to God on your guys' campuses and in your guys' homes or when you guys leave this church tonight. Um, for you guys to want to live lives that are glorifying to this God who you're coming to an understanding of through these messages, it doesn't take like this super deep, like big understanding of like who God is. If I tried to preach this message to that, to me when I was like in third grade sitting on that curb, it would have blown my mind. I wouldn't have been able to like understand the thing that I was saying. It doesn't necessarily take like this super, super deep like understanding of God to live a passionate life that's like surrendered to him. All you have to do is know about that kindness that was expressed about the cross. Know just enough to want to live lives that are repentant and glorifying to God. And so I hope that you guys were able to understand maybe something new about God's like perfect character. And I hope that that deepens the sincerity in your guys' worship and your relationship with God. And as we move forward to the continuation of the series, I pray that we can just continue to worship God together. Kendall, Kendall, thank you for thank you for preaching a message that's challenging and that's difficult and that's um, not easy. <laughs> uh, last week, as we were talking about the series, I was like, "All right, Kenneth, um, I want to give you a week in this series. I want you to preach and uh, so go pray, think, seek God on what He wants you. Um, what he wants you to preach about." And He comes back and He goes, "Hey, man, so I'm going to preach on judgment." <laughs> I was like dope. <laughs> I've, been a, I've been a youth pastor for 12 years. I've never once, um, I've never once summarized the entire book of Job in one message. <laughs> that was gnarly. <laughs> but it was so cool because um, and understanding this, and I just stay away from the book of Job because it messes with my theology. The whole book of Job, you guys missed this part because Kenneth just, he broke out down the whole book. But the book of Job starts with Satan talking to God. First off, why? Like, why? And then, and then God asks Satan, so man, what you been up to? Also, why? And then Satan responds in like the most creepy way possible. He goes, oh, just traveling through the world, looking, who I can, looking for who I can like devour and attack. And he's like, oh, cool. And here's the craziest part next. This is the part that, like, I just, I, I, I love God's word, but I hate the book of Job. Because God goes, oh, really? Just looking for someone who you can, like, you know, unleash hell upon? Have you considered my servant Job? God brought up Job's name to Satan. God, if you're ever talking to Satan, leave my name out of it. In fact, God, leave all of my students' names out of it. Don't mention any of them. Don't mention Bridge Youth. Don't even mention the Temecula Marietta Valley. Like, it just blows my mind. Like, I don't understand that. Has something in your life ever happened that you just don't understand? You just don't get it? You can't wrap your head around it? I, I wanted like two minutes before we move into worship to to ask you a question, to challenge you with something that Kenneth's message challenged me with. Kenneth addressed how Job worshiped God in the ashes of all he lost. Here's the question God challenged me with. If you lost everything, would you still worship me? 
Lord Jesus, if you lost everything, would you still worship God? There's some of you in this room who you've lost so much, and it's, can I tell you, it's inspiring to see how some of you have worshiped God. When you lost your father, for some, when you lost your mother, when a brother or sister passed away, when you didn't know if your dad was gonna be alive, when you got kicked out of your house because your parents lost their jobs and you didn't know if you were gonna have anywhere to stay. I've seen some of you worship God through suicidal thoughts that you didn't know why they were there and you couldn't figure out why they wouldn't leave. I've seen you worship God through depression seen my wife worship God through crippling anxiety seen you worship God through abandonment I pray to God that you live a a blessed life I pray to God that he never mentions your name when Satan for some reason rings his doorbell and wants to have a chat because there's definitely a doorbell on the gates of heaven (laughs) but if you were to lose everything would you still worship God here's what I think Here's why I think that Kenneth's message tonight is so important. Oh, wait, I had my Bible for a reason, Bobby. (laughs) I was going to read a verse out of here. That's all right. It's my hair clip. Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Sometimes God will speak to you in the silence. That's how God spoke to Moses. But he spoke, he spoke to Job in a freaking tornado. No matter where you're at in life, maybe things are calm and cool and they're rad and they're awesome. God can speak to you. Maybe you feel like you're in the middle of a whirlwind storm. God can speak to you like he did to Job. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man. I just love that. God's. God's so savage in how he talks to Job. He says, all right, brace yourself like a man. It's like a quote from the movie Gladiator. He said, because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me. And and here's, I don't know about you, but I hear God's voice here from a place of mercy where he's like, yeah, you know, tell me if, if you know so much, Job. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? Who supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no further will you come. Here, your proud waves must stop. I love this part. Last verse. Job, have you ever commanded a morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? To which, of course, Job, at the end of about two chapters of that, chapter later, God mentions dinosaurs. It's like, yeah, they'll wipe you out like nothing. Job, I created those. So Job's got to respond with, oh, gosh, not me. I've never made the sun rise. Why is Kenneth's message so important tonight? Because if you understand that God is just you'll understand that you can trust him. So when it seems like your whole world comes crumbling down, you can take a step back and go, God, I trust you. And even if I have to stand in the ashes of all that I've lost, I would still worship you. Would you do me a favor? Would you close your eyes? Would you bow your heads? In this moment, I know that there's some people in this room who... Maybe you haven't lost everything, but maybe, man, maybe you've lost a lot. Or maybe recently you've just lost something. But that one thing has hurt so bad. Can I tell you, God is just. 
that he loves you. He's madly in love with you. And like Job, he didn't come down to Job and tell him, hey, stupid idiot. Like, shut up. We're done. He came down and helped Job arrive the same place we need to arrive to tonight. God, you're so big. You're so mighty. You're so just. And I trust you. So even in the midst of this storm, I'll worship you. So right there, eyes closed, you just lift your hands out right in front of you. God, we give you all that we are and all that we have. God, for some in this room, they're in that whirlwind. Would you speak to them? Would you help them understand how big you are, how amazing you are? God, I pray for those right now who are struggling. They're going through it. God, they've lost so much. Maybe they've had friends turn their back on them. God, maybe some in this room tonight have lost loved ones. Maybe some have let dreams die. God, I pray tonight they'd worship you because you're worthy and you're still just. And you love us. We thank you, God, that mercy triumphs over judgment and because mercy triumphs over judgment even the hell that we bring upon ourselves you'll still deliver us from so tonight some with broken hearts we worship you some with crushed spirits we worship you some God we're good and life is good so we'll rejoice and we'll worship whether blessed or in times of trouble tonight.